Well, like I said, we're on week eight uh, of this series. If you're just joining us and visiting us, you're catching us on the very last end of a very important series called Loved. Um, I know our, our students are here in the room. There's no youth today, so they're here. Uh, one of the parents of the youth told me, they said, wow, for my teenagers to sit through this, to be honest, Jeff, there's been a lot of stuff in this series that's made them blush and even myself blush a little bit. But I would say that as we talk about sexuality and gender and identity, they actually said to me, they said, there's been a lot of stuff that's made them blush. But at the same time, what better place than for my son or daughter to hear about these kinds of issues than in the church for the first time? Not in the schoolyard, not on social media, but in the church. And I was like, yes, thank you for that. Um, and so it's not awkward. We're going into this series. We have gone in headfirst and in just tackling some of these issues about what the Bible says about gender, sexuality, and ultimately, identity. So it's not so much what we do, but really the whole um, undercore of this whole, pa- whole series has been who we are. And it's been based on 1 John 3.1, which says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And that is so important to understand our identity of who God has created us to be. It's been quite a journey these last seven weeks. Uh, We've had a lot of testimonies, a lot of scripture unpacked for us, and a lot of application given to us. And so really to end this series, there's a real appropriate fitting question about what we need to think about. And that is this. What now? What do we do with all of this information that we have been given? If we want to be people that want to apprentice our life to the life of Jesus... How are we supposed to live in light of the last seven weeks? You know, there's been a lot of uh, polar opposite views on this whole idea of gender and sexuality. There's been the far view of saying, you know what, for the next gay pride parade, we need to bring our pitchforks and torches and, and protest as much as we can. Then there's the other side to say, you know what, if we're Christians, we should just keep our mouths shut every day and just go along and live our lives. And I think actually probably both are wrong. But where do we stand then, and what do we do, and how do we respond? Well, I want to give us an answer to this, and I want to look into Scripture to do this. But I want to start by giving us a picture to carry us through this morning, that hopefully it will stay in our minds, not only as we go through this, but hopefully as you go home and live this week as well. I want to introduce you to a man by the name of David Kirby. Now, in 1980, David was a healthy, vibrant young man who one day came out and told his parents that he was gay. Now, their response was typical of a small town suburbia in Midwest United States at that time. They flat out rejected him, treated him as an outcast and said this can't be true. And he felt so much uh, distance from his family and, and neglect that he actually moved to California to seek a community that would be more loving and trusting of him and accepting of him and his uh, choice and his lifestyle. Well, David found that in Los Angeles and found a community that loved him, but David also found something else that he had no idea uh, was present, and that was AIDS. AIDS was uh, a disease that was becoming more and more common at the time, but AIDS was known in the culture back then as the quote-unquote bad person disease because it predominantly affected gay men, drug users, and prostitutes. And that term, bad person disease, uh, I found it in research because it was indicative of how the culture responded to all of those uh, people 
and lump them into one area and call them just the, the bad people. There's not many faces that we have to them, but they're just the bad people because they're outcasts and they're living wrong. Well, David knew that he had contracted AIDS and he knew that he was dying. And so David wanted to go home. And David reached out to his family and in the course of his journeying with them, they had an about face with David. And they welcomed him back with open arms and they cared for him until his final breath. And the picture that I said I want you guys to leave with today is partly this one here. This was taken by the Life uh, magazine journalist invited to be with a family in David's last moments on earth because it brought a sense of humanity to the disease with the deep emotion felt. In fact, Life magazine later called this very picture one of the 100 most influential pictures of all time. But it's in this picture that I want us to notice something very specific and I think something that the photographer didn't necessarily mean to capture. And that is the picture on the wall above David and his bed. You see, on the wall behind the family is a picture by an artist by the name of Jay Reed. And the uh, picture is simply called, Come Unto Me, to echo the invitation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 when he says, Come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will give you rest. Do you notice that Jesus' hands are reaching out? They're welcoming and they're inviting. And I think if we're going to look at what our response is uh, to people who have same-sex attraction, who struggle with gender dysphoria, and who are part of the LGBTQ plus community, I think we must understand this posture of Jesus towards not only this community, but in fact, to all of us. So what does Jesus want to say to us this morning? What does the Holy Spirit want to speak to us and over us this morning? I want us to keep this image of the open arms of Jesus in our minds as we walk through the text. So the text. We're going to be looking in John chapter 4. So in the New Testament, there is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of these books are accounts of Jesus' life. And we're going to be looking at the fourth account in the book of John, John chapter 4. And I want us to help us see two things in response for us to understand this whole idea of gender and sexuality and identity. Number one is our inward response to gender and sexuality. And number two, our outward response to gender and sexuality. So let's read in John chapter 4. I'm going to start at verse 5. So when he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, jo Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Make note of that. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. See, we have to understand here in the text, like I said, make note here that, that she's going out at noon. Fetching water, it just was this way in the culture at that time, was the woman's job to do this. And what the women did is they used this opportunity to fetch water as a communal practice. And they would go in the early morning, because it was much cooler then, 
And not only would they fetch water, but they would join together and they would talk about each other's lives, what's going on in their village. It was a way for them to catch up socially and also care for one another. You didn't dare go at noon because you wanted to be with other people. But we notice that this lady, this woman that Jesus meets, is at the well and it's about noon. It's the heat of the day. And what it tells us is it tells us there's something about this woman's life that she is not with the rest of the women for. There's something that's keeping her distant from everybody else. Let's read this and see what's going on. In verse 13, Jesus answered her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Talking about the water from the Jacob's well. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Isn't that a question all of us would ask? He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, as we try to look at the text and understand, uh, I think, I don't know if you're like me, you try to go like analyze every detail of what's going on. In other words, one thing you might want to wonder is why is this woman in this situation? Why is she on man number six, in other words? Um, Scholars don't know exactly why. In other words, did the husbands die previously? Um, Was she a prostitute? Uh, Was she divorced every time, and why? But I want to make sure that we don't just get hung up on the wrong things in this situation. Because our goal is not to find out what was up with this woman's situation. But rather, here's what we do know. Is that Jesus knew her situation. Without even offering it to him, he knew it. And he knew that in her life there was brokenness sexually, which led to affect her identity. So in other words, there's something broken in her that's causing her to come to the well at noon, not in the early morning. And suddenly I think we start to see the dots being connected here. There's something broken in her, the fact that she's, had, she's on man number six. There's a brokenness sexually there. And Jesus is meeting her at the heat of the day to talk to her about this. Jesus decides he's going to pull up the rug and name the brokenness in her, to which she doesn't even try to get out of. She doesn't try to make up excuses and go, but, you know, hey, why did I? She simply says this in verse 19, Sir, you must be a prophet. In other words, yes, everything you've said about me is true. Talk about an awkward situation for the woman. I think Jesus is naming probably some of the deepest pain in her life, some of the pain that she wishes she would just stay stuffed down forever, to never have to deal with this again, and just to keep coming back to the well at noon every single day for the rest of her life because she's shamed and rejected by the people that knew her. And now Jesus is confronting her. Jesus is putting a mirror up to her life and saying, I I know what you've done. To be honest, in preparation for this, I realize every single time I read this passage, I never see myself in this story. 
probably for one is I'm not a woman and I haven't had six men. So, you know, in one sense you're like, well, that makes sense, Jeff, of course. But I think we read a lot of stories for their details and kind of distance ourselves from them. But can I just offer this possibility? I wonder if Jesus actually wants us to take a step back from the specific details of this story and help us to see the bigger picture that's involved here. In other words, the big picture here is that Jesus is identifying a sexual brokenness in a person. And perhaps for all of us here, or many of us here, we can't identify necessarily with a woman, but in the big picture of sexual brokenness, we can begin to identify with that. See, I think for all of us, if we look at this idea of sexual brokenness, we're all broken to some degree. And maybe for some of us, it's been our doing. Maybe we've gone outside of what Jesus has wanted in our, his ideal for us sexually. For some of us, male or female, we know that we've either had or currently have, as we sit here this morning, an addiction to pornography. Maybe we know that we've had sex outside of marriage. Maybe we've had an affair, either physically or emotionally, knowing that we have gone far too far in a relationship emotionally with the person of the opposite sex that is not our spouse. There are other areas in this that we cause, that we know that we sit here, and if we were going to say, if Jesus is going to pull the rug up on us and expose us and the brokenness, it is there. But may I also add to you that there is a sexual brokenness among some of us that is completely of, not of our doing. Maybe we struggle with our identity or with gender dysphoria or maybe we've been a victim of something that someone has done to us. And we sit here and we know brokenness. This is tough. And I'm not here to expose this to either shame us or do anything else because I don't believe that Jesus is confronting this woman in order to shame her in any way. But I think he exposes this. And if we can now think about the outstretched arms of Jesus over this situation, I think Jesus wants to expose this for her to know that he has this beautiful grace that is available to her and a freedom that she can walk in, that she never has to be ashamed for the rest of her life. And I think for us, as we respond to this whole area of gender and sexuality and identity, I think we have to understand that all of us actually are part of this story. Because all of us have some, probably, probably some sort of sexual brokenness in us. And therefore, it affects our identity and how we view ourselves. And it's probably never going to be something we talk about over coffee in the back or maybe even in a, in a, a small life group that we have on a weekly basis, but we know that the pain and brokenness is there. But may I remind us that Jesus' open arms are available to us just as they were in that picture over David Kirby and just as they were to the woman at the well. That we don't have to live forever wishing that we could have a redo because Jesus wants to pronounce healing over us because he is a good God. He offers the woman living water. He says, you don't have to come back and get water again and again. The water that I offer is eternal life. It's freedom. It's healing. 
And I think Jesus wants to offer that to us as well this morning. Now, it's not just as easy as saying, Lord, heal me, thank you, all right, I can leave out of here just a new person. Because part of all of this as well is I think that it's important to understand and maybe one thing that we can be challenged by in this is this whole idea of vulnerability in the area specifically of sexual brokenness. I think before this series started, there's been so many things that we just think, you know, we, just, well, we will never talk about in church. But I think we've seen the incredible courage of so many people that have gotten up in this series and have been vulnerable time and time again over some things that I was like, We've had emails from people who are like, I am shocked at the level of vulnerability that people have had on stage here, pronouncing this not only to us, but to the other campus as well. So 1,300 people on a weekend would hear this. It's like, wow, do they know what they're sharing? Yeah, they do. But it's the level of vulnerability not only for them, but I think it also helps pave the way for us to say if there's, if there's something in us that we need to begin sharing with people, if they can get up on a stage in front of over 1,000 people and do this, I think it's time in me walking towards the healing that Jesus wants me to have, that I need to begin to be vulnerable with somebody. Maybe it's something you've done, or maybe it's something that has been done to you. But is there someone that you can trust or take a chance and trust around you to help lead you to those open arms of Jesus and experience that healing as well? Well, there's a second part of this story here in John chapter 4, Uh, that I want us to see, because it's not only an inward response that I think we need to have here, but it's this outward one as well. You see, after Jesus names her brokenness and invites her to drink the living water, she doesn't just go, thanks so much, and go home and live her life. We're told in verse 28 of of John chapter 4, it says, the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And so the people came streaming from the village to see him. This woman had an outward response. And I think for us as apprentices of Jesus who are trying to live our lives as Jesus wants us to live, we have this outward response as well. And I think it's in this outward response that we as apprentices of Jesus have a lot of work to do. Because if we were doing such a great job at this, we wouldn't have people like Brad Harper's son. Brad was here, I think, three weeks ago, sharing about his son who told him he's gay and is um, walking that path. And Drew said in his book, Space at the Table, he says this, uh, to be gay in the American, and I would say Canadian as well, to be gay in the American evangelical church is to be dead. You are an outcast, an orphan, a refugee, a diseased person. If you have been attending church regularly, if you are a person who says, you know what, I follow Jesus, this this is aimed at us. This is how people who are gay and struggle with gender dysphoria and areas of sexual brokenness see the church. It's to be dead. I think our outward response needs to be covered with so much more love than we've shown in the past. Pastor Rick Warren says that our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. 
The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions in order to be compassionate. Now, I get this right away. As soon as we hear that, there are some this morning who will push back on that and say, yes, Jeff, thank you very much, but we need to speak the truth in love, do we not? And I would say, absolutely, we do. But I think in looking back at this series, we have already spoken the truth in love. We have heard some hard teachings these weeks. And I think we have to be careful because from the people that we know outside of church, I think that they would know that, that we have spoken enough truth but not done it with enough love. So please understand here, I'm not saying that we don't need to ever say anything. We don't need to go to that extreme. But I do want to say that if we share truth without love, our words mean nothing. And so the question is, how are we loving those in the LGBTQ plus community? There's so many things to say about this. Let me hone in on two things. Number one is to be gateways to Jesus, not walls. I think we need to be gateways to Jesus, not walls. And I want to explain it this way. Um, I was out on a walk a little while ago and I saw uh, a lawn. It wasn't this particular lawn in this, this picture I want to show you, but it was something like this. So go ahead and put this picture up here. I want to just ask you guys, what do you see in this picture? Don't answer out loud. It's okay, but just take a look at this. What do you see? You know, it's interesting um, because I think despite the owner's attempts to make their yard look nice, which in this particular picture, maybe there's a little bit left to be desired there. They've got some work to do. Um, I think that all we see is the no pooping sign, right? There's two mistakes here. Number, number one is that dogs can't read. Um, so it's not given to the dogs. Um, the dogs are not going to listen to this. I would say the sign also does very little for the owners. Because if you're walking your dog and the dog has to go and he's going to go on the lawn and suddenly you see the sign, you go, Charlie, no, don't poop there because there's a sign there. Let's bring you over to the next lawn where you can poop freely. I don't think that happens too much, to be honest. But here's the second problem. And that is in the owner, in trying to keep their lawn beautiful by putting up signs of what not to do, they've actually detracted from the beauty that they're trying to show in their yard anyway. Here's the parallel. I think the church in general may think it's doing a good job at showing its beauty by telling people what they cannot do. But in doing that, I think we actually turn people away from the beauty of who Jesus really is. I think we try to often be the loudest voice in people's lives to think that if we just have a completely moral culture, that we're, we're good. And we forget that actually the loudest voice in people's lives is not us, it is Jesus. And it is the Holy Spirit. I love what Kyla said uh, last week, which is very similar to what Andy said the week before, which is very similar to what Scott said two weeks before that. And that is that their experience in God speaking to them was a deeply personal one. In other words, none of them said that it was because of so-and-so confronting me and drawing me in on an issue that changed me. But rather, it was the voice of Jesus speaking over them. Maybe at home, maybe in a time of worship, but the voice that changed them was Jesus, not a human. And I think that is so important for us to see. 
Rodney Stark, a historian at Baylor University, noted in his research um, this. He said, after three years of uh, sorry, after 300 years, Christianity became the ethic of the entire Roman Empire. Why? Because women, children, and slaves saw something in the Christian ethic that was appealing. There's power in the testimony of the Christian life lived out beautifully. Author Madeline Lengel points out, she says, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want it with all of their hearts to know the source of it. Jesus says something very similar in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. He says, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so I wonder, are we being people who open up pathways to Jesus, or are we building up walls to him? To say that Jesus will only accept you if you are this way, this way, and this way. Instead of living our lives so beautifully that they can't help but see the beauty of Jesus in that and want to know more. And we actually allow the life-changed part to be Jesus' responsibility, not ours. The second thing to note in our outward response is I think it's to create places of conversation instead of hostility. We are a pretty intense and hostile culture when it comes to big issues. One of the issues that's been in social media and it's been in media in general over the last few years um, that I looked at this week has been Soji. And I just want to talk about this for a moment because I know there's so much to talk about this. This could be a whole other eight-week series just on this. SOGI is in our public schools, and it stands for Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. We hear in our culture of this material, and we wonder, how do we respond to SOGI? What is the way that we should do this? Well, actually, I went to the Government of British Columbia website to learn a little bit more about SOGI. And it says, on their website, it says these words. It says, SOGI123 is a resource that supports educators in helping schools create safe, caring, and inclusive learning environments for all students, regardless of their race, culture, religion, sexual orientation, or gender identity and expression. Educators are not required to use this resource. I'll be honest, until this week in looking this up, I thought it was a required part of the curriculum. I only found out by reading on the very website of the government of BC that educators are not required to use this resource. Now, also look here too, it says, you know, regardless of their race, culture, religion, and then sexual orientation and gender identity. And what we've done is we've grabbed a hold of that last part and kind of elevated that as the only thing that SOGI has an agenda for, when actually it's trying to bring inclusivity with everyone because they saw something that was happening in the schools in regards to bullying and discrimination over a number of areas, not just sexual identity. From everything I learned about SOGI in the media and the social circles, I had this picture that this curriculum was entirely aimed at shoving it all down my child's throat if they went to a public school. It's actually not true. And there's parts of SOGI that are actually very good to make things more inclusive. So what am I saying here? It's like, open up the doors to SOGI and let's just let, let her fly? No. I think God also wants us to be very attentive to what is going on and stand up for the truth. 
But again, we need to create places of conversation instead of hostility. And what I mean by that is this. If SOGI is not a required part of the curriculum, I think we first need to have a conversation with people involved in it before we make judgment calls. So perhaps a conversation with the teacher and maybe what their plans are for teaching it. Talk to the school if that teacher plans on using it to see if we can move them to another class. We are guardians of our, parent, of our children, but we have to understand we have to create dialogue and conversations instead of just a knee-jerk reaction to do something against SOGI. I think we've seen in the social media that you know, people get together to talk about SOGI and then there's a protest that takes place outside and then there's protests for people who protest the protest and things go on and on and we ho we're, host we're hostile towards each other. When all along, I think that we need to have conversation. This is where Brad Harper, one of the areas that he just, he's so good. And he talked about his lesbian neighbors and that he had got to know them for, I think it was two years before they ever asked him, what is it that you do? You know, he didn't go over and knock on their door and say, this is where I stand, where do you guys stand? He got to know them, he got invited into their lives and vice versa. And through that, a conversation was able to take place in a way more productive way than just simple hostility. I think we need to value conversation, not blanket judgments. So those are the two areas of understanding, I think, a little bit of our outward response to this. And may I also say this too, the importance of, of this topic is not just to react to what we see in our culture today, but to perhaps prepare us for areas that we need to address in the tomorrows and the tomorrows and the tomorrows to come. For some of us here who are parents of children, maybe young children, these areas of gender dysphoria and same-sex attraction and dealing with some of these issues do we not think that some of our children will struggle and address some of these issues? I think we have to be prepared in understanding the series a little bit more and what God says about these areas so that we can be equipped if that time comes when our child comes to us and says they want to talk about one of these areas or they're experiencing this. So we're not just talking about the series as a reaction to what we see, but a preparation Maybe it's a preparation for neighbors who are going to move in close to you, who are gay or lesbian, who identify in this community. And I think it's for us to say, how do we respond in love? And how do we build conversations and gateways instead of hostility and walls? And how do we show people the hands of Jesus reaching out? How do we show them in a very tangible way that just as Jesus responds in love and grace, that we are a community that is attracted to Jesus and his grace that he offers to us. I want to invite up uh, Darlene Pankratz to come and read for us this morning. Darlene is, Darlene is going to read for us um, a story that is not her or Tom's story, but it is a story nonetheless um, that is true. It's from a friend who wants to remain anonymous, but it's a journey of what her and her husband have gone through um, in, in talking and addressing things with their children as well. So, Darlene, let me give you a mic here. And I appreciate you sharing this on their behalf. Thanks. So, as Jeff has said, this is not my story, but I want to communicate uh, the story of this family, and I just pray that God would um, 
through the Holy Spirit, just speak to your heart about um, this family and their real family and to remember to pray for them. The title of this is Our Story. On Valentine's Day in 1984, we became parents for the first time when our beautiful baby girl was born. We named her Amanda, which means worthy of love, and we called her Mandy. She was a nearly perfect little girl growing up, a good student, kind, compassionate. We hardly ever had to discipline her. She was compliant and obedient. She wanted to please us, and we were proud of her. She was a wonderful big sister to her brother, born a little over two years later. And then to our surprise, gift, a gift from God, another daughter, born when Mandy was seven. We raised our children to know and love God. They were in Sunday school every week, and then eventually in all of the youth group activities. They went to the same Christian school where I, their mom, taught. When it was time for Mandy to choose a university, she chose a Christian one, a bit more liberal than we were comfortable with, but she got a full tuition scholarship there, and she was happy. At least we thought she was. In her junior year, when she had just turned 21, she told us that she was a lesbian and that God was okay with that. She said that she had struggled with same-sex attraction since early adolescence, that she had spent hours overnight lying prostrate in the university chapel, begging God to heal her. And according to her, he answered her prayer by putting two professors in her path the next day who told her that it was fine with God for her to embrace her sexual identity. She told us that she had never felt so free, so loved by God. We did not react well. We panicked. We pulled out every stereotype we knew, all from our own fears. We asked her if it might be just a phase. We told her that we loved her, the sinner, but hated the sin. We told her that this was her cross to bear, her thorn in the flesh, that she needed to just fight harder. And in our response, all she heard was shame, judgment, and rejection. If we could only go back and have another opportunity to react from love, we would do it in a heartbeat. About a year later, Mandy told us that she was transgender, that she had always felt like a boy. She said that she was changing her name to Micah, was taking male hormone treatment, and wanted us to use the male pronouns. Years later, she had her breasts removed and married a woman. They have a child, our grandson, born from a sperm donor. Through the years we watched, always at a distance, our child struggled to reconcile his childhood faith with who he thinks he is. He and a gay friend started an organization to help Christian young people embrace their LGBTQ identity, promoting the arguments that Matthew has addressed in this series. But eventually he abandoned his faith altogether and he has essentially walked away from us, too. Any contact we, ha- we have, we initiate, and he most often does not respond to texts or phone calls. There is just so much pain between us. I wish that Brad and Drew Harper's book had been available to us a long time ago. What we want our brothers and sisters in Christ to understand is that as we look back on the past agonizing 15 years, the moments that we most regret were when we were reacting out of fear, pride, and control. The moments we are happiest about were the ones when we learned, leaned into love. Leaning into love can take on many shapes, depending on the situation. But here are a few ways we did this. We used his chosen name and pronouns. 
no matter how hard the struggle was. We attended the wedding, not because we were sanctioning it, but simply because we loved our child. We were genuinely thrilled to become grandparents. Most of all, our love for our child and our regret over our initial reaction sent us into therapy and emotional work to explore our own issues of pride, control, and fear. We have prayed, we have cried, we have begged God to restore our relationship with our child. Most of all, we grieve. We grieve the loss of who we knew our child to be. We grieve the loss of Mandy. Yes, of course, it's the same person, but from the moment you know your child's biological sex, you have dreams and expectations. Nothing prepares you to be the mother and father of the groom at a wedding of the daughter you raised. Most of all, we grieve the loss of connection because caused in large part by our reactions. Over the years, our Christian friends have reacted in different ways, everything from advising us to cut off our child from us forever to urging us to get over our intolerant, narrow views and accept Micah fully. We've had friends pray that our child would be so miserable in her sin that she would repent. We have had them probe into how we raised our kids, searching for a reason for who our child has become. We've been asked how we didn't see this coming, and, and yes, she was a bit of a tomboy who was more comfortable wearing jeans and dresses, but no, we didn't see it coming. All of these things are normal human reactions, but none of them were helpful. We were judging ourselves far more harshly than anyone could judge us as parents. The few friends who helped us the most were the ones who were willing to sit with us in our grief, in our confusion in our struggle. As painful as this journey has been, we don't have a happy ending. Kyla's is the one we long for. It has brought us closer, closer to each other and to God. Thanks to the therapy and emotional work we've done, we've discovered ways to make space for grace, for our child, of course, but also for ourselves and for others who grieve. We have learned that dedicating our children to God in front of a church family and raising them in a church isn't all there is to being a Christian parent. We have surrendered our children back to God a thousand times. We have learned that ultimately they belong to him. That they will make their own choices that will at times break our hearts. And we still pray every day that they will choose him. That they will know the love of God and find rest for their weary souls. Thank you, Darlene. I think that story, that testimony, represents, uh, I think, the struggle. And I think it symbolizes the fact that we're on a journey in this, which is actually how Matthew started this whole series in week one, about his father responding to someone who asked him, how, did, how do you feel um, about this whole issue of, of gender and sexuality, and he goes, I'm on, a, I'm on a journey. Do you remember that? I think we need to remind ourselves that we're on this journey, that we're part of this journey ourselves, that Jesus wants to respond to us with these outstretched hands, and he wants us to help extend those to others as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your deep, deep love for all of us. Thank you that you speak to us in our areas of deep need, of confusion, 
of brokenness, of health and vitality. And God, I pray that you would speak to us and give us wisdom and discernment as we continue to journey in this whole area, that our conversation wouldn't be done after this week, but that we would continue to keep the conversation going with you and with others about how we can respond. Thank you, Jesus.